Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Rad Broadcast. I am producer Brandon from the Rob, Anybody, and Dom Show. Today I've got a special guest joining me again. You haven't heard her voice in a few weeks as she grabs her boobs in front of me. This is Brandon. You can say whatever you want. Well, it is I mean, true. It's, it's not necessarily true. It is true. I is just it? watch you do it. Really? Yeah. You're just groping yourself. Whatever you say. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, last week I covered a lot of UFO stuff and uh, I teased some things going to be happening this week. Uh, we're going to talk about the giants in the sky, the strange encounters of the flying jellyfish and walking squids and octopod min- monstrosities. Um, but before we get into that, Mrs. Brandon was asking me a pretty interesting question before we got started. How would you feel about being abducted by aliens? Yeah, tell me. How would you feel about being abducted by Personally? aliens? Personally? Yeah. I would love it. Yeah, right? I, I would welcome <laughs> it. Not only be... Not only... Would we be doing butt stuff up there? Oh, good point. You know, they got to probe you. Totally. It's like price of admission, right? Hey. I mean, I'll try anything once. Twice. It's true. Three times a lady. <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I, joking aside, I would actually welcome it. I would love to be abducted by aliens. Not only would we know the answer to the question, are we alone in the universe? Would it be enough for you to know the answer yourself and not need to share it with the world? Yeah, like, I think that would be my biggest thing. Yeah. It's like not being believed. I think it would be cool because it would be our little secret between me and the, the aliens. And I feel like <laughs> I, I don't. Salacious. <laughs> I also don't feel like people would believe me. Right. So that's one of the reasons I don't necessarily like I do and don't want one of those encounters. Why waste my time explaining something that happened? Right. When it's just going to be met with disbelief, ridicule. Right. And that's kind of what happened is some of one of a couple of these stories that we have here, especially the first alien abduction account that was described by a medical exam with a crude pregnancy test. Mm -hmm. And this was like the first real uh, UFO encounter that we have that they actually took seriously on record that started with the Kelly Blue Book. No, (laughs) Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book. This it's more or less one of those stories that it just was so widely publicized and reported. By the Navy, too. I think that's where it's a little bit different, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it, it happened post, was it post Area 51? Post-World War II, for And sure. post-World War II. Yeah, Area 51 was in the was in the 50s. Yeah. Or not not Area 51, the Roswell incident. Yeah, Roswell. Uh, let, me, let me just do a little quick Google here. Because, <laughs> uh, We've been reading about other alien stuff. Not yeah. all of it stays. You know, and I was actually talking to Brent from Sac Spirit, who mm-hmm. kind of helped springboard my uh my research yeah um not only does he provide great uh references but he also provides some pretty good original content which i'm not going to get into today but uh because he just i don't think he wants to share about that um but he brought up some some incidents that i should just that i should look into that included the foo fighters not the band but the actual yeah foo fighters that uh there were there were um, aerial objects that were unexplained but were yeah. commonly uh, reported on during World War II. Yep. And it almost seems like a lot of these instances uh, occur. A lot of these abductions or UFO stories occur while there's a lot of global devastation going on. Yep. And there's always a peak of UFO sightings during war and wartime. 
And it's just oddly enough around the same time that the Manhattan Project was going on and they were developing all the nuclear bombs and nuclear testing and humans are toying with things that we shouldn't be toying with. Yeah, basically. Uh, Powers beyond our imagination and control. Yep. um, That we do not fully understand. And it, it, it kind of it feels like that that those instances and our experimentation with nuclear uh, technology was almost like ringing a doorbell to the, to the, yeah. the, the, the higher powers or the extraterrestrials. Well, yeah. It almost the, like sent out a beacon that said, Hey, we're, we're toying with this technology that you yeah. are probably, this is probably kids play to you. Or they just don't fuck with it. <laughs> they, they <know. laughs> They're like, there's a reason yeah. we don't play with this stuff, guys. And which, which, you know, the Roswell incident <laughs> took place in, in mid 1947. So mm-hmm. this is well before the reports we're going to get into. Um, yeah, that they were actually taken seriously, right? Uh, in 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 our in our records. So, um, before we get into all that, there's also uh, the Trumbull County UFO incident that mm-hmm. happened in uh, apparently Ohio is a hotbed for UFO activity. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, in my research here, that that's what I'm learning that yeah. a lot of the, the uh, not only in North America, you know, you hear about it in the desert a lot, um, but Ohio, strangely enough, is one of those hotbeds including South America, Peru, places mm-hmm. like that where you hear a lot of UFO activity, and yeah, even in Russia. Isn't uh, Chile one of those places mm-hmm. that has like a really high reported UFO report? Yeah. So it, it's it's just interesting that there are these special hotspots, and yeah. you hear about all these events that happen during... And look, like I was saying, when I was talking to Brent yeah. from Sack Spirit about this, he's yeah. like, Welcome to the wormhole. This is, are, are you, are you prepared? <laughs> yeah, basically. Are you prepared for this rabbit hole? Because yeah. um, it, you could just get so lost in it. And there's so many uh, skeptic skepticism that goes yeah. along with all these reports. So not only are you getting these firsthand account stories, which they could be here, they could be totally made up, totally fabricated for attention. Um, but why? And and the Betty Barney story, why would they make that up? Why yeah. would they want to bring attention to themselves, of all people? Well, they did write a book, but they they needed to tell their story. Yeah, and, and Sure, so they had to cope there's, somehow. There's, there's that conflicting voice or, or that, that um, other side that always wants to put down those right. that are putting their stories Don't out there. Don't challenge my reality. Them. But not yeah. not just that, but you're they look at these people that will put their stories out there because they want to make a buck. Right. And I get that. I get that. But back then it wasn't nearly as prevalent as it is now. And I think it's easier. It was easier to mock them because there there was just we didn't have the technology. I think it's easier to mock those that believe in UFOs now because of technology, because we have so many abilities to share information and also doctor images, Photoshop things mm-hmm. in places. Like there's this one video that's going around that I found this morning on social media where they uh, captured this Dobby-like <laughs> creature. I watched, I watched this like 50 times this morning getting like a feel for it. Just to see if it was legit, right? Cause right. Yeah, it, because the first second you watch it, you're like, oh, yeah. okay, it's creepy. So, and it's like the feet slapping on the ground. Let's back up a little Sorry. bit to explain what it is because <laughs> not everybody knows what Dobby is. Dobby, Dobby is a character from the Harry Potter series. He's the house elf. And he looks like a little, little, yeah, like a little tiny three, midget like elf. Like three and a half, five, like four foot little, like 
dog-eared kind of very lanky pointy face facial features yeah a bigger head like kind of a big round head and tiny slender little, body little itty bitty toothpick legs and arms and you when, know and, and when i saw this video that's circulating it's actually a, a surveillance footage of somebody's driveway yeah it's black and white it's it's night vision mm-hmm. so it's happening in the middle of the night and you just see this little thing this little <laughs> elf like creature walking down in front of the in front of the camera okay and uh, and it does look like a little Dobby elf, but, but if it, you look closer, it's clearly a kid, dude, slapping his feet around on the pavement, and he's clearly like wearing underwear on his head or something. <laughs> so, so it's totally it does this thing does the chicken dance when it gets to the end of the car. Yeah. All I can think is like some little kid, just like I don't know, between six and eight, got I, he just happens to be a lanky little you know fucker. He. Mm-hmm. Gets out of school for summer break. You remember we used to have those little carnivals and like we'd have those like fun like end of year rallies and like they always made us do the chicken dance. So maybe he's just reliving that awesome last day of school and it's some poor neighborhood kid that just has a wicked case of the sleepwalks. Yeah, honestly, it, <laughs> it's, it's so funny. <laughs> it doesn't seem it just seems like it, it was it's being portrayed yeah. as it's like this mystery creature. It just seems creepy at first. I'm just dying for it to be like the neighbor and be like, man, my kid, I don't know what his problem is. And sleeps on his head and he walks around like, I can tell he does watch it. He he gets his feet slapping and then he chicken dances. (laughs) So that's just an example of something that can circulate around on the internet and be claim to be like this mythical creature when it's just this stupid kid. I'm still giggling about it. I mean, dance around looks, with his like if you, if you watch it on your phone, you're not going to see the details. You got to watch it on a good computer, like, or bring it up on like your PlayStation, like TV screen. It, he clearly has like calf definition and like, yeah. he looks like he's wearing a pair of little boxers mm-hmm. and like, he just looks like a kid have like that sleepwalking because he's, he's not moving his body. Like you would, if you were awake, Right, <laughs> it's just, Foot slapping, you know. Oh man! Oh, I'm still giggling about that video. This shit is. So, I'm so excited to hear what happens next, if anything. Yeah, they they even fess up I to hope, what it is. I hope know. somebody follows up. I am just, I just, I'm gonna laugh even harder if it confirms it's just a kid. <laughs> so other strange goings ons on the internet that I wanted to bring up mm-hmm. uh, before we get to all the juicy UFO stuff and Ooh. jellyfish in the sky. Okay. Um, there's actually a. Uh, 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 most the most dangerous laptop in the world was sold at auction recently for one point three four five million dollars. I'm so curious. Why? I'm more curious about the seller than the buyer. Really? I am. Okay. Well, it's dubbed the Persistence of Chaos. It's a Samsung NC10, and it contains six viruses that have caused an estimated ninety five billion dollars in damages. Despite what you might think not meant to be a tool for any world domination scheme it's intended strictly as an art piece okay it it could be used for academic purposes but it's currently isolated and air gapped to prevent foul play so nobody can even get to it commissioned by the cybersecurity firm deep instinct the persistence of chaos was created by artist guo o dong (laughs) (laughs) dong who sold the Verge? Uh, who told the Verge, the, the online paper, that the piece is a way to give abstract cyber threats physical form. It contains viruses like WannaCry, which infected more than two hundred thousand computers across one hundred and fifty countries and caused nearly four billion dollars in damages. 
and Black Energy, which shut down a power grid in Ukraine, among other stunts. The laptop also contains the I Love You, My Doom, So Big, and Dark Tequila Malware, which is meant to, uh, which is, each is meant to be a reminder that ransomware was potential for real-world harm. Uh, it's isolated in an air-gapped state. The laptop is harmless. In a sense, it might be comparable to comparable to collecting ancient weaponry. As long as you leave it on the shelf and don't pull the pin out of the grenade, in this case, connect to a Wi-Fi or plug in a USB, it should be safe. While these viruses could still cause harm, they're outdated in the sense that new forms of ransomware are already at work. For instance, ravaging Baltimore and attacking cities like San Antonio. If Geo, Guo Odong plans future inter- iterations of this art form, he'll have plenty to work with. Um, and there's actually an update on this article. It has been updated to reflect the final higher bid. The closing value was adjusted from 1.2 million to 1.345 million on the Persistence of Chaos website. Um, that's actually, so that tells you about the buyer. Yeah, but what he's about an artist. Who was selling it, though? The artist. How did he get the computer? He purchased Samsung NC10. And then they, so there are traces of these viruses that still exist. So it's not that the computer, that it was originated from the computer. They just right. happened to be on that computer because at one point they were, they, they, they were downloaded point, onto it or whatever. Right. So they probably, <clears throat> excuse me, they probably took like a flash drive that, that still had the actual malware on it and yeah. just loaded it onto the laptop. Oh, okay. There it's just installed. It's infected. They've infected this. So they probably just randomly bought this Samsung laptop and said, let's load this thing Man, up. I kind of wish I paid closer attention the first time we read through that, because if that's what that was, I am less impressed. Why? Because, I, because I was totally hoping it was like world domination computer. <laughs> like that was so much cooler to me. Well, all it takes is this, all, the, all it takes is this laptop to be plugged back into the Wi-Fi onto the net. It could infect computers, but only computers that are like Windows 7 and below. Because so, Windows 7 is gonna is not going to be serviced by Windows Security starting later this year. And all of the other platforms below it, like XP, older Apple. I don't think you can, you can infect Apple computers. Basically, he like created a Pandora's box. Of old, of old viruses. Right. Yeah. But like, it's just like... Why? Yeah. <laughs> See, I think it's cooler to imagine that it was some spy's computer and it was confiscated and it was the CIA that was selling it or whatever. I don't know. It just, I guess that's the the way it, it read to me at first, but. It's not as sexy as you no, wanted it to be. No, yeah. it's not. It's not like Dr. Evil's uh, yeah, weapon of like, mass destruction. Who's the spy that carried right. that around? Like, yeah. what was the purpose? Like, who? Like, oh, what? Yeah. Like, no. Sorry, that, that, sorry, that story was such a womp womp. Wah, yeah, womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, but it's just, I, I get the the importance behind it. it. It's, it gives a physical value to something so damaging that mm-hmm. there is nothing tangible to hold on to. And apparently it's worth $1.345 million. I mean, sure. Cha-ching. Cool. Good for you for having a, I don't know, whatever you call Expendable it. income. Yay. <laughs> so in, in other news that might just be another womp womp to you, uh, Mrs. Brandon, but uh, science confirms that cats and dogs can see spirits. And frequencies that humans can't. This is no news. This isn't news, to me. right? This isn't news. Yeah. Not to me. Because we know that butterflies see in different different uh, spectrums, butterflies right? Butterflies see Bugs. in UV. 
bugs in mice, general. Mice see in UV. Mm-hmm. What the, like, so a lot of fish do. <laughs> there, there's a there's a shrimp that sees in like way more color spectrum than any eye on Earth. Like, a shrimp? It's a shrimp. I swear to God. Well, is that because of the environment that it lives in? It must. It, it must have something to do with the fact that it probably also sees in UV light. So it can it can perceive way more colors of the spectrum. Like we get we get seven. Why did we only get seven when shrimp that they don't really do anything? They because swim around and they eat stuff. That's all they do. Because we didn't need them. Really? Sure, we didn't need them. We had that's, big brains. That's true. And the, our our plane of existence. Yeah. We don't necessarily need all of those spectrums to survive. No, of course. Like it's our, just the way our, that we've evolved. Right. Like our, our eyes did evolve underwater. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a. Uh, if you believe in that sort of thing. What, evolution? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so uh, apparently many different types of animals have the ability to see in frequencies that we humans cannot. What? what? Until now, it was thought that animals could not see UV rays, but scientific evidence suggest many mammals can sure this evidence comes from a study that was carried out just a few years ago by biologists at city of the university of london in the study it was shown that cats dogs and other mammals seem to see in uv light uv light is the wavelength beyond the visible light from red to violet that we humans can see pet md says this sounds official. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. <laughs> Have you ever felt that your cat or dog can see something you don't? Well, you may be right, according to a new study. Cats, dogs, and other mammals are thought to see an ultraviolet light, which opens up a whole different world than the one we can see. UV light is the wave light, wavelength but beyond the visible light from the red to violet that humans can see. Humans have a lens that blocks UV from reaching the retina. It was previously thought that most mammals have lens similar to humans. Scientists studied the lenses of dead mammals, including cats, dogs, monkeys, pandas, hedgehogs, and ferrets. By researching how much light passes through the lens to reach the retina, they concluded that some mammals previously thought not to be able to see the UV actually can. The story goes on to say, there seems to be much more to this than we might initially think. Has your pet ever seemed to be looking at something we cannot see? Mm-hmm. I feel like our dogs do. Oh, yeah, the tracking. When they just kind of suddenly track along up yeah. behind their head and stare up into a corner of the wall, and there's no bug. Sometimes it could just be lint flying in the in the sunshine, which Opie, our German shepherd, has been taking to attacking when it's the right time <laughs> of day, when the sun is shining into the living room. She goes after all the little dust particles. Snap. Snaps like a... <laughs> <laughs> She's just like a snapping turtle. Yeah, she is. Chomp, 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 chomp. Uh, but, we don't encourage the behavior. Just She just no, does it. Yeah, she's just crazy. <laughs> she's nuts. Um, while the study itself was not uh, was not on whether animals could see spirits or not, it proved they do have much more going on in their eyes than we initially thought. Well, duh. Yeah. And animals have more are more in tune with the spiritual world than we will ever be. Yeah. I mean, at one point, I feel like we were, were not tainted by the outside world, and in our youth, we perceive the spiritual world a little bit more. We we're more open. Yeah. We're, yeah. not, we're not as tainted and, and run down by the real world. Yeah. And our eyes are, the veil is a lot thinner. We haven't been brainwashed yet. Right. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> what the fuck? I don't know. <laughs> um, so let's get to these uh, flying jellyfish. Before, okay. before we do, I want to talk a little bit about my favorite movie. Okay. The Abyss. 
Oh, we just watched one of your favorites. We just watched that over the weekend, and it it actually not for the first time. Let's be clear. No, <laughs> the way you said that made it sound like it's like our first experience. I think I've watched The Abyss about the same amount of times that I've seen A Hunt for Red October. About a million. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I grew up watching those movies. I don't know. If, I don't know if it's because they're both underwater movies that that they happen to be some of my favorite movies. It's usually. The space and the underwater movies that really grabbed me. Well, and The Abyss is the perfect combo. Oh, my God. It's, That's why it's, I liked it. It's, it's got, an alien movie. It's got underwater action. It's got um, military conflict. It's got aliens. It's got drama. It's got intrigue. It's got a love story. I still cry every single time I watch Bud revive Lindsay. I know. Every single time. And I know what fucking happens. I know. I know what happens. I know this movie like the back of my hand. It's the toughest part in the movie because she dies oh. and you think all hope is lost and Bud is like fighting. He's so mad. The, the Ed Harris character is like getting so emotional. He's like. With his blue you hand. fight, fight, fight. You never back down from anything in your life. <laughs> the fight. I love that <laughs> movie. Slaps her around. Oh. Fuck, that's a good movie. You know, Shit. I actually masturbated to the still shot of when they rip her uh, shirt apart <laughs> so they could put the paddles on her. How fucked up is that? That you needed She's dead. Pad. I know. She's you dead. Know she's not really well, I know, dead. But the character in the movie is dead. But and they rip open her shirt. And that's when I decided to hit the pause button so I could see her boobies so I can rub one out. you know in real life she's not really dead. I know. But it's still a fucked up scene to masturbate to. I mean, come on. Yeah, I will agree with that. I'm not not saying it's not, but I mean, desperate times, I guess. It's in a still shot. It's not like when he's screaming at her to fight. fight, No, and I'm like, you know, coming at that moment when Ed Harris is like telling her to fight. Did you come on the screen? No. Well, then you're not that fucked up, I I guess. Dignity. (laughs) I came into my my sheets in my bed. That's how I did it. (laughs) Anyways. So one, not not only is that scene something that, that gets me excited, it's actually the aliens in the abyss. Spoiler alert: that's what's down in the fucking abyss. Um, but if you have, if you just watch the regular theatrical version, you're missing out on a whole other layer of this movie um, that that creates this global conflict caused by these aliens down in the abyss. Well, um, if you watch, we caused the global conflict. Right, and they were just showing, showing. Okay, they were so putting it back in our face. Let me back it up a little bit. In the director's cut of the Abyss, when Bud goes down, mm-hmm. all the way down there to disarm the nuclear bomb. Yep. Uh, he sees the aliens, and the aliens bring them in onto their vessel, whatever it is. It's just parked down there at the bottom of the ocean. Yep. And when they give him his little compartment with oxygen, and he takes off that that that. The underwater map. suit yeah. that allows him to breathe deep uh, water under, under under the water. He uh, he has a conversation with these aliens, and the aliens point out that humanity has gone way too far. Yep. There's too much global cl- conflict. Everybody's mm-hmm. pointing nukes at each other, and we're going to flex our muscle and show you that if you don't put your arms down, we're just going to obliterate the human race. And they show they pan to these uh, shots of of different cities around the world, yeah. coastal coastal cities, <clears throat> and there are these massive waves that form. They're like 50-foot waves, but they don't Bigger. go. They just, Bigger. yeah, they're huge. Hundreds of feet. They just stand straight up on the ocean, and they just hover there, and Be- they wait. Because the aliens' technology in the abyss is 
they can control water. And the weather. Water is their technology. Yeah, they're the reason for the storm. Right. So they, they not only did they create the hurricanes, they were able to create these massive waves, hundreds of feet mm-hmm. into the air. And they and Bud was basically negotiating with these aliens, saying, "Hey, they're, they're, we're all about love, man." And and that's when they they show the the clip of 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 Bud typing out, "You know, I knew this was a one way ticket. Yeah, I love you. You're my wife, and I love you, wife. I love you, whatever. <laughs> yeah, very sappy movie. And you know, it's kind of it's kind of cheesy, but it's just it's very it's a cool twist yeah. to a." a on what you don't normally see in the theatrical version. And yeah. I wish that they had the director's cut available. I have to like find it on, on um, eBay in order to, to watch it ever again. Now we actually, that's not true. My uncle has it cause I bought it for him for the director's cut. Yes. It's the only, it's the well, only cut we ever watched. And the only reason you, I bought it for him is because it went from VHS to DVD. And we where'd you find it. it? It's online. Go to Amazon. Ah, I didn't, I didn't think it was on Amazon. Anyway, I bought the physical copy for Jay a couple of times, actually. Anywho. <laughs> This all comes up because there are creatures and beings that live deep beneath the ocean that we barely know anything about. Mm-hmm. And they live in these environments of high pressure and high and low light and no, no, light. Ox- no, no light, low no, oxygen, no oxygen, um, an immense amount of pressure yeah. at the bottom of the ocean. And, and temperatures, very low temperatures. I mean, it's practically unlivable, but. As far as we know, in yeah. the last you know ten tw- in the last twenty years or so, we've done so much exploring of the uh, of the, the ocean floor that we're learning about all of these new creatures. There is all these new species of animals that just every time we go down there, there's a new one to explore. There is not an inch of this planet that doesn't have some sort of life form, even in thermal volcanic thermal pools. That yeah, there's are bacteria that toxic, lives in all of that. Yeah. That, that, that feed on bacteria and toxins like life. Literally this whole planet is just crawling with it from the very, very tops of the mountains and the coldest peaks to the very bottoms of the oceans. And so why can there be creatures that live in the skies? Why not? Because, like you, like you so eloquently put before we started recording this, we're basically at the bottom of the of of the ocean when I, it comes to. I call it the, the sky. sky ocean. <laughs> so <laughs> if you if you imagine the best way it helped me understand the ocean in layers is if you sort of look at the atmosphere as the thinnest part of the atmosphere is at the top, right? So all of that atmosphere is is oxygen and hydrogen and and water and all those molecules and they condense and when the water molecules condense they get heavier and they settle down to the bottom right so that's what our oceans are and then you get the air which is like the upper atmosphere sort mm-hmm. of like that's the equivalent where the air starts to thin out a little bit where you have like clouds and whatnot so that's us we're on but we're on the basically the bottom level of the sky ocean so we're the bottom feeders we walk around on the ground right we're, we're in the troposphere yeah the troposphere there you yeah. go So that would be, so that's where we are. Um, That's our level. And then below the troposphere is, you know. Right above that is the stratosphere. And then it goes to the mesosphere. I was going down. Oh. So the troposphere is is right above us on the ground. And Mm -hmm. then below us on the ground, we have the ocean, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're somewhere in the middle there. Literally, we're in the middle of all of these layers. So imagine we're just the sediment at the bottom of the of the yes. sky ocean. We're this we're the snails and the, <laughs> we're, we're awful. We're right. awful. We're bottom feeders, right. you know. And you see, so the higher up you get, you have uh, bugs that can fly. 
right? Mm-hmm. Let's call them the krill. Like right. the, the the big whales feed on, right? Yeah. And then you have birds and they fly and they live in the, tr- in the you know. Like the sharks of the sky. Right, yeah. right. Birds of prey mm-hmm. are like sharks in the ocean. Right. Uh, and then you have flocking birds, right? Watch your mouth. <laughs> Just like you have schools of fish like sardines mm-hmm. and they even have like migration patterns. Like it's for every living thing on earth, there's something that you can kind of compare to in the ocean or in the sky. Like there's, so that's it's just like how, a, it's almost like a mirror, you know? Almost. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a difference of density of elements that separate our worlds. And so there have been particularly strange accounts of encounters with flying jellyfish. And where do jellyfish live in the ocean? Going back decades. In the 1950s, a, a policeman in England claimed to have had a run in with a low flying sky jellyfish as he was riding his bicycle on patrol. He claimed that it had drifted right down in front of him and that he actually bumped up against it, describing the sensation as similarly as similar to brushing up against a soft blanket and that it had a slightly unpleasant smell of mildew bacteria. In 1958, there was also a report from Florida where a policeman named Faustin Galagos found a translucent purple blob about the size of a soccer ball outside of his house. He claimed that when he had approached it, it seemed to be some sort of dying creature and when he picked it up, the thing just sort of evaporated in his hands. Ooh. When you go to pick up a jellyfish, do they tend to evaporate? The ones that are sitting on the sand? No, but um, there's, I think they're called sea dandelions. You should Google this to double check that I'm saying the right thing. Sea dandelions? Sea dandelions. So like there's all, there's these little creatures that live at like the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And yeah, oh, yeah, sea dandelions. So those things. They do. They look like little. Um, they just look like little floating dandelion. Things. Yeah, like the yeah. ones that you like blow and like like make a wish, right? Yeah. Um, but when you bring them, like the deep sea ones, when you bring them up to the surface, it gets to a certain point where they hit a certain level, and mm-hmm. the density isn't enough for them to stay together, and they literally evaporate before they get to the surface. Right. So flip that upside down. So if sky jellyfish have to be so. Um, soft and light and fluffy and like have zero like little density up there to keep them together Mm -hmm. if you come it's just like us if we sank to the bottom of the ocean the pressure would crush us right so and the interaction from the human touch you know right the 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 energy or whatever is on our body yep it interacts with the the very the very uh sensitive being that lives up in in the atmosphere Mm -hmm. Sure. just evaporate. Yeah. I mean, it could be a chemical reaction. Chem- that that's what, thank you. That's what I was trying like, to like, say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we could be very alkali heavy based. Mm-hmm. And because of what it sounds like happens to them, that could be a nasty reaction for them. Like in, you know, an acid vinegar kind of thing. A more recent account was given on the site Phantoms and Monsters and comes from a witness in Perth, Australia, who's referred to merely as BD. Big dick. The witness claims that in 2012, he was out in front of his house one evening having a cigarette when his attention was drawn to the curious sight of the light patterns on the stars being disrupted by something passing over them. At first, he thought it might be a plane, but it soon became apparent that this was no aircraft. The witness explains, as it got closer, the way it moved resembled the way a jellyfish would swim if it was horizontal. It was hard to describe, but it looked to be expanding at the front like a balloon then using that air to propel itself along. 
It was roughly 100 meters above me, and I watched it for 10 minutes. After that, it was out of sight. This was during a clear night sky in Australia. I am very familiar with aircraft as I live relatively close to Jandakot Airport, and we see hear them all the time. It was certainly not a machine of any kind. I yelled out to my mother-in-law, who was staying at the time, to come out and look. She also saw it. I filmed it on my smartphone, but being 8 p.m. at night, it was pitch black, and you couldn't see anything. Of course. <laughs> well, no, that's, that, that happens, though. Sometimes cameras can't focus. If there's too much black, cameras can't focus no. even on the small, like... I know. I'm just, I'm just saying. I know. Every time we try to get footage of this stuff, oh, but it's too dark. It's too well, blurry. let's think about this. In order to get footage of something like that, you need to have a really good expertise of how to operate a camera in low light settings to get what you want. Mm -hmm. Does everybody have that? No. I have a general knowledge that that needs to happen. I have no fucking idea how to make it happen. <laughs> so. <laughs> BD goes on to say, if I had to guess, I would say the feeling I was left with is that it is some kind of creature that moved gracefully and gradually in large deliberate movements like a large bird would do with a large flap of its wings. Then gliding for a bit, although this was unlike anything I could describe, it appeared to be translucent in parts and remained at the same altitude and speed, but just completely silent. Amazingly, there was a follow-up report from a different witness who claims that he and a friend saw what appears to be the same or similar creature around Perth at around the same time as this sighting. The witness says of this creature, I would like to confirm the story of the jelly flying jellyfish that creature, uh, as described on your forum by B.D., there were two of us, actually, not just myself. We were in Perth, CBD, actually having a glass of wine on a quite, quiet, loud jazz music playing balcony about 10 meters from the ground. I'm so thrilled to find out there's another person who has seen this. The creature was behaving exactly as described by BD, so basically like jellyfish, but without any long tentacles, about a size of a balloon. Those balloons that you're, you're grabbing and moving around there off the mic. Mm-hmm. Would you stop playing with your My boobs? My bra sucks. Take it off. No. My boobs suck more. <laughs> it was kind of changing according to the different colored lighting attached to the balcony, and it was flying upwards so effortlessly. It is really precious. I have finally found this. I found, I've been searching for so long. I've, to be honest, I don't recall the exact day, but it must have been the same night as BD mentioned. We had seen it around 9 to 10 p.m., either Friday or Saturday. The creature wasn't too shy either, meaning it, would, it didn't fly in a hurry would gladly put my hand on my heart on this one and now may actually try to find it again. But who knows how often do they appear? A very odd claim was posted on the site NorCal Blogs from a commenter calling himself Pi Guevara, who claims that his uncle and Oscar Guevara had taken part in a scientific survey of these sorts of creatures in the 1950s and 60s. The remote areas north of San Francisco had apparently experienced the spate of sightings for over a decade of what would they're usually referred to as space jellies, which would congregate in the upper atmosphere along the coast, after which they had, would soar up into the upper atmosphere out of sight. Pi provides a letter that he allegedly received from his uncle, which outlines the phenomenon and his study of it, and reads, This coalescence of space jellies, as we called them, was assumed to be part of a seasonal migration pattern in, in about the western Pacific. With a small joint grant fund from several philanthropic scientific organizations, which shall remain unnamed, I developed a small, high-altitude, long-distance, ultralight aircraft, the first of its kind, assisted by an in-flight, deployable, and detachable ovoid helium balloon, 
That's a mouthful. Yeah, say that three times fast. No, thanks. I got a mouthful for you. I bet you do. This platform was developed as it had become evident through observation and experimentation that the behavior of these creatures was disturbed by approach of larger aircraft. It was not by coincidence that the craft bore a distinct resemblance to the large, presumably mature form of space jelly creatures themselves. Working with a shoestring budget, I deployed a modified Aqualong attached to a motorcycle helmet and a small forge bellows that was fashioned into a crude but effective and lightweight rebreathing system for high altitudes. For warmth, I wore a gorilla suit procured from a customer's auction in Emeryville and had it fitted with a lining of goose down from below the aircraft was lowered to a fair-sized grappling hook with large mackerels tried it to... Wait, what? Let me try that again. (laughs) From below the aircraft was lowered a fair-sized grappling hook with several large mackerels tied to it with bailing wire. Mackerels are fish. Yeah. Yeah. Inside of six weeks in the fall of 1973, I had snagged most of these diaphanous jellyfish like buggers. So he went fishing in the sky. Yeah. And it's funny, he used bait that you, like jellyfish jellyfish or like that kind of creature would eat or squid. None of the captured survived the experience and within minutes dissolved into an odd steamy smoke. On my final expedition, as per standard operating procedure, I reached the specified location at an altitude of uh, 9,500 feet, deployed the balloon, and floated up into the remaining few of these creatures, which apparently died of fright on the spot, dissolving into a thread-like wisps before me. This guy has some balls. No kidding. 9,500 feet in a gorilla suit? (laughs) Floating up in a a balloon? Yeah. What? He's nuts. Besides the regrettable loss of the subjects under study, there was one more unfortunate circumstance. On the last mission, after jettisoning the balloon, I was flying in from the Pacific over the Fairlands at about 5,000 feet towards my hidden base of operations in a remote area. I was spotted by a U.S. Navy crew on a practice and shakedown cruise flying a restored antique consolidated Vaulty PB2Y Coronado that was to be displayed in a few days at a Fleet Week exposition near Fisherman's Wharf. They veered off course, followed me, and executed a close and slow pass-by over San Francisco Bay. So close, I could see the faces of the pilot and crew. The flying boat then abruptly dropped altitude and beached near Mare Island Naval Shipyard in what, for all intents and purposes, appeared to be an emergency landing. Weeks later, I learned, through some Navy sources in Vallejo, who hung out Fridays at, the, at, the, at a bar, local bar and grill, that the pilot and crew recovered from the plane had babbled incoherently for days all they could get out of them was flying fish bear, flying fish bear. <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't know. I want to Google and see if this story, if this is an actual like UFO report from the Naval like resource. I don't know. Do they publish that stuff? I don't know. Needless to say, the story has never been declassified and likely never will be. There is your answer. The only reason I relate it now is lay to rest any fears that may still exist about these creatures and confident in the knowledge that no one in their right mind would ever actually believe it. See, it goes back to, to people even trying to tell the stories and, yeah. and just being discredited from the get go because cuckoo, you're loony. Well, there's a lot of stories like that. Like, um, uh, I've talked about the, the panda bear was, didn't it was called a cryptid, a cryptid, a cryptid is an unknown or undiscovered animal. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they were considered cryptids until like the 1920s. Like my grandmother was born before panda bears were considered like real zoologic animals, mm-hmm. at least by like the world. Do you know what I mean? Until it could be further investigated and right. explained. There was a whole expedition to get a platypus because they brought back a dead one, like a stuffed one. And they were like, I don't believe you. This is bullshit. Yeah. Somebody made this. Get me a live one. Like they had a to seal go- with a duck bill. What? Yeah. What? And a poisonous hook <laughs> that lays crazy. eggs. Platypus, platypi, whatever. They're, they're the weirdest they're, animals. They are. On the planet. Well, I don't know. I don't know. They're pretty fucking weird, though. Well, right now, it could be, uh, it could pale in comparison to these floating jellyfish. Do you um, think platy- the, the platypus was some escaped alien pets? Yeah, where they abducted <laughs> a couple of different animals yeah. and they they made no, a hybrid no. animal. Like they just came from a totally different planet in general. Like they just oh, like, they escaped oh, the ship. Shit. Yeah, yeah, just yep. scurried off like ET. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, you've seen that movie. What's the movie? Is it um, the not the day after tomorrow? Um, the one where like the sphere comes down and like it collects like life forms and like I think Keanu Reeves did a remake. The day the Earth, Earth stood, stood still. still. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, that's a great movie. That so maybe it's something like that. That's where Platypus. Yeah, from. maybe. Um, so one idea is that they uh, these these sea creatures, such creatures, could be uh, theoretical organisms known as atmospheric beasts or atmospheric life forms, as they are often called, are said to be organisms that live their entire lives floating in the high atmosphere, undetected by humans. These creatures are more often described as having bodies that are semi-solid or almost insubstantial, with some reports even claiming that they are able to adjust their density from almost immaterial and invisible to more solid, depending on yet as known on factors. Uh, numerous theories have been posited as to how seemingly fantastical organisms could manage to stay adrift in the air, such as air bladders or very low body densities. And this just goes to say that goes to show that we don't know anything <laughs> about exactly. those those levels of atmosphere. Yeah, and and there's actually proof now that that there's actually bacteria that thrives in the sky. Yeah, it's everywhere. I mean, it makes sense. There's bacteria floating all around us at the ground level. Why wouldn't it live up in the atmosphere? What if these are like a bacterial organism that at some times in the right conditions come together to form like mega organisms? Yeah. Like, like how you can have like a red tide or something and it, and it, it, or a super organism where it looks like, you know, one giant school of fish and they're all moving in the same and they all have kind of this, this role. But if you were to pull it apart, it's just one little thing. Like, is that possible? There, there is a video going around of one of these sky jellies and it looks like it's either congregating with another or like separating from another. Hmm. I, I, so, is that the video you showed me recently? It is the one that's like glowing. And at first, I thought it would look like the weather. It looked like a weather balloon you, that was just kind of floating around, and then yeah. all of a sudden, it, it changes shapes and forms. It's like, wait a second, and it's a balloon sparkly. can't do that. Yeah. Well, it sparkles because weather balloons are normally, you know, they have the uh, reflective it's not services a reflective on. Reflective sparkle, though, that's what makes a difference. So it's, it's almost like a sprite where it's emitting its own light. Yeah, it, it, it's it's described as a bioluminescent sort mm-hmm. of feature. Like that's how it sounds. And, and it, you know, during the daylight too, in middle of the day. Yeah, and and it doesn't. It's not like it's glistening, like a reflection, like flashes. It looks more like when um, uh, something bursts, 
or like those fireworks, you know, the ones that I love that like the waterfall ones that just kind of fall and then just kind of like sparkle out. Mm -hmm. It's almost exactly what it looks like, like little neurons flashing. Well, it's all this uh, bacteria up in the up in the atmosphere yeah. that could be feeding these these floating jellyfish. Well, yeah, I mean, a, a recent study published in the Nature Communication uh, describes how earthly bacteria can even catch rides on raindrops. When the raindrops burst, the bacteria are sent into the air and, under the right conditions, catch wind. But it doesn't even ha- take raindrops to send bacteria into the air. Bacteria are very, very light, and almost any air movement can lift them up. I mean, that's no doy. You flush a toilet, bacteria sure. just flies. Out of the toilet. I mean, the, the same kind of concept can be taken. The clouds are not made context. of of bathroom poop no, bacteria. No, there <laughs> Just, might be. Well, sure, but back, uh, there's good and bad bacteria, and I'm, I'm going to guess that some of the bacteria up there is probably pretty good. Yeah, it's probably pure and, and delicious for those jellyfish. <laughs> in fact, there's an entire microbiome in the sky. Um, an atmospheric chemist at Georgia Tech has collected bacteria samples from the troposphere five to nine miles above us. We collected DNA from these bacteria and we sequenced them and we identified somewhere, somewhere around 100 classes of bacteria types. He explains that the bacteria sampled from air masses before, during, and after uh, two tropical hurricanes were a mix of oceanic and terrestrial microbes. There you go. What's more, uh, indicating that they can survive in the harsh conditions of the troposphere, scientists still aren't sure how the bacteria manage it. That's because we can't explain it. Well, and bacteria and jellyfish are some of the oldest creatures to ever live on this earth. Very, uh, very resilient. Very, and very adaptive. Mm -hmm. Some bacteria are known to have mechanisms to help cope with UV exposure. Some are known to withstand drought. Some are known to withstand very high oxidant levels. So perhaps the roughly 20 types they saw, which you can find everywhere, have just the right sort of machinery to withstand the atmospheric conditions. Uh, Morris's research team has shown the bacteria may be... Uh, more withstand atmospheric conditions, they can actually influence the weather. She studied how proteins in some airborne at bacteria can increase the freezing temperature of water, catalyzing precipitation from the clouds in the process known as ice nucleation or for raindrops for ice particles. So in order to start the process that would get cloud droplets to aggregate and become heavy enough to fall, you generally need a, need freezing uh, tem- in the temperature regions. You need a freezing process where an ice crystal then will collide with the droplets and are also cold, but they haven't frozen yet. And this is how the heavy droplets can form. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Basically, there's just a ton of stuff floating around this guy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not an unreasonable thought. And why, wouldn't, why not? You know, why, right. why wouldn't there be a whole world, a whole different ecosystem in the sky, if it, if it could exist on the, in the deep parts of the ocean, why not in the yeah. I mean, and, highest and reaches of the sky? If I'm not mistaken, jellyfish were some of the first actual solid creatures on this planet. Mm-hmm. So, you know. <laughs> I mean, come out. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, flying jellyfish are weird enough. Uh, let's move on to something just about as strange. One thing, one one thing would not typically expect to find out walking around on land is an octopod beast. But there have been some downright surreal reports of these as well. One earlier and very weird case comes from the battlefields of World War II, in particular the Battle of Okinawa in Japan. Lasting from April until June of 1945, 
The 82-day-long battle was envisioned as the first step in a planned eventual invasion of the Japanese Okinawa Islands and on to the mainland. I was, it was the largest amphibious assault of the Pacific theater and saw some of the fiercest, most intense, and bloodiest fighting of the entire war. From here, among the many scattered dead bodies strewn about in the aftermath of the fighting comes some odd tales of encounters some Japanese troops allegedly had with something very bizarre indeed. There are some scattered stories of Japanese troops surveying the smoking battlefields and telling of seeing what appeared to be very large octopuses picking through the corpses. These creatures were said to be around four feet in height, and rather than slither about like one would expect a normal octopus to do, they are said to walk about on their tentacles with their heads held above the ground. When one of the beasts was startled or on alert, it would apparently stretch its tentacles up to hold its head higher like a camera mounted up on a, up on a tripod. Making it all more sinister is that the soldiers who saw these creatures claimed that they seemed to be actually coming to feed upon the corpses of the fallen. Yum. It is hard to know what to make of these reports, and one wonders if it was just a spooky forgotten wartime legend of the battlefield, right? Like they were so traumatized from everything they saw, they were just hallucinating. Maybe. Maybe. Then I mean, we, what a strange thing to hallucinate. <laughs> then we have what has come to be known as the Octosquatch. In the summer of 1961, a 29-year-old trucker driver, a truck driver named Archimedes Sanchez. Archimedes. Oh, thank you, Archimedes. Archimedes. That's I'm like, oh, name. that might be another kitty name in the future. <laughs> Love that name. Archimedes Sanchez was driving along a precipitous mountain through the Basque Mountains in Spain at around 11 p.m., along with an unnamed companion on their way to the town of Puerto de Barazar. As they rounded a bend. Their headlights hit a bizarre and rather monstrous being standing upon an embankment nearby, which prompted the pair to stop their vehicle. When they peered through the murk ahead, they claimed that they saw a hairy octopus which stood around four feet tall with glowing eyes and tentacle-like arms. The witnesses and the, and the thing apparently sat there, completely frozen and immobile, for several minutes. Both parties, probably just as startled and scared as the other, before Sanchez snapped out of it and slammed the accelerator, which caused the weird apparition to scurry backwards away from the threat, after which Sanchez backed up and tried again, apparently intent on running it over. <laughs> Interesting. Humans are so awful. Yeah. It's clearly scared. Let's kill it. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, the otherworldly intruder refused to take off into the night, instead always just managed to avoid being run over as if it were all a game. Finally, the two men, neither who were willing to step out of the vehicle to investigate, drove off to leave the, the being behind, chickens. never to be seen again. Such chickens. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Should have got out and started talking to it. Well, so what's interesting is that some of the stories I read about the jellyfish, um, there, are, uh, there are many other accounts that we just didn't, don't have the time to get into, where um, somebody actually found two like landing in front of them. And it, it, it appeared as though they were trying to, the jellyfish themselves were trying to get back up off the ground, mm. which sounds a lot like what that thing was just doing. Like it, maybe it was stuck or like dying and just couldn't quite get as far. Like, Weird. you know, when you like, have you ever seen like an animal that's like on its deathbed or like being chased and they're trying really hard, but they can't go very far. Mm -hmm. That sort of sounds, that's the behavior that I hear from that description. <sighs> a, it's just, it's, 
I would love to be able to see something like this, like this in person. Kind of oh, like I would love to be abducted by aliens someday just to experience that. Yeah. I've had, um, what is it, three or four separate alien, like UFO sightings that were. You've had alien encounters? Sure. Yeah. I had, well, three were the, were the same type. Uh, one was totally different. Mm-hmm. Two happened in the same spot, but were totally different. Um. I honestly just kind of felt blessed. I was like, wow, I got to see that. That's real. And right. and one was like textbook classic, like little, um, it was like red, yellow, blue light, like, but not lights that you would see on like a plane. Like mm-hmm. we don't put yellow lights on planes like this. Or it was like an lights. amber light mm-hmm. or blue lights. Well, I think we, some, some lights are blue, but they're usually on the top of the plane. Like not so... It's usually red and white that you see. It wasn't normally a, a normal plane in the sky. And it was obviously. it was like a almost like disco lights, right? Like little rectangular squares that would light up next to each other in, in sequence and like go, almost like go in a circle, like around a thing. It was like, do, 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 I don't know. And then the, so I saw three of those, two at the beach, one in Roseville. Um, and then the other one that I saw was at the beach as well. It was actually a small orb of light that was hovering about a hundred feet above the ground over the dunes. Mm-hmm. And everybody assumed it was a kite with a flashlight on it. Cause that's what we used to do. You know, we never flew kites at night, which is one of the strange things because the winds always died down at night. Um, but kite flying out there was just, you just did it. You don't go to Dylan's beach without flying kite um but it it danced around and we all and i tried we tried to take pictures of it but back then we didn't have a nice camera um and it moved around in what seemed like kind of a random but like sweeping like up and down and over and kind of dancing kind of motion and then shot straight up and then shot straight down and then shot straight up and was gone. Wow. <laughs> and not it was so it wasn't like we sat we sat and watched this for 30 minutes. Wow. That, hundreds, that's a long time. Hundreds of people saw this. Yeah. We all talked about it in camp. Everybody was trying to figure out what it was and everybody nobody and the it was in an area where nobody really went. Like it was part of the dunes it was just too wide to trek over to get to. There was sort of those wetland area over there you just didn't mess with it. So what what, uh, what year decade do you oh, think this was? Nineties. That would have been ninety seven, ninety eight. How much of that do you think could be drone testing for military? Because I feel like the technology has been around for a while, but not readily available to. It made absolutely no sound whatsoever. Really, and we were close enough, and the wind was not blowing that night. Wow, that's and, trip. And I'm telling you. Everybody in camp stopped and went, what the fuck is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the police showed up at some point. Um, it, it was people came out of their cabins and their trailers and their tents. And we all just kind of stood and watched this thing. So it was not, I was with a group of people. Mm-hmm. I was with three other individuals and we all stood there watching it. We all tried to get pictures of it, but like <sighs> nothing really came out on the camera. It was Right. It was moving too fast. It was the fact that the way it took off, because it came down, and oh, it shot out over the ocean, but it didn't leave a beam of light hovering over the... 
I don't know how mm. to explain that either. That's probably had something to do with the fact that you couldn't get those pictures on your disposable cameras. Couldn't, couldn't yeah. And I had another weird encounter, which I I know it wasn't a UFO, but it was, I was out at the shooting range over at uh, Cordova Shooting Range. And there's one of the airfields out there. And one of those um, like stealth planes was flying over and we were like super excited to see it. And I had a video camera and I could see it on the screen of the video camera that I was videotaping. And when we went back to watch it, it was fucking gone. Damn. And there were five of us <laughs> that encountered that. And we all went, what the fuck? That's crazy. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, this thing shot straight out over the ocean, came back up, down. It, it, it I still. To this day, that was my most like, whoa. The other ones were like little beams of light in the sky. I was like, hey, that's cool. Hey, guys, look at the UFO. That was, and that was my last one. That was the last time I ever saw a UFO. So we could do a whole show on UFOs. We could, we could spend hours, if not days, covering this UFO stuff. We could have an entire podcast dedicated just to UFOs. And we have basically this last two episodes. So, yeah. Um, and I, I don't know about you, if you've listened this far, uh, you're a saint because this stuff is really interesting, but it could also make people's eyes gloss over and just go, man, enough. This is like, this, this is a, b- a bunch of bullshit, right? Some of these stories are pretty fascinating, including uh, the first ever recorded uh, story about an alien abduction for, about Betty and Barney Hill. Which their story took place in 1961 um, that was actually investigated by the Air Force's secret UFO initiative, Kelly Blue Book. Project Blue Book. Oh, stop it. <laughs> Project Blue Book. That's right. They they are the this whole story is the reason Project Blue Book was basically started. Created. Yeah. Is it chasing us? That thought coursed through Betty and Barney Hill's minds as they drove down the empty winding country road in New Hampshire's White Mountains, Dawn's favorite mountains. It was a September night in 1961. What? They hadn't seen a car for miles, and a strange light in the sky seemed to follow them. When they finally got home to Portsmouth at dawn, they were far from relieved. They felt dirty. Their watches stopped working. Barney's shoes were strangely scuffed and Betty's dress was ripped. There were two hours of the drive that neither one of them could remember what had happened. With the help of a psychiatrist, the quiet couple eventually revealed a startling story. Gray beings with large eyes had walked them into a metallic disc as wide, Betty said, as her house was long. Once inside, the beings examined the couple and erased their memories. Their experience would kick off an Air Force inquiry, part of the secretive, ini- secret inif- secretive initiative. Secretive initiative. Secretive initiative. Ha ha! Did it. <laughs> they called it Project Blue Book, and that investigated UFO sightings across the country. The incident would also become the first ever widely publicized alien abduction account and shape how stories like it were told and understood from then on. Debate continues as to whether the husband and wife were liars, fanaticists, crackpots, or simply sleep-deprived people who later recovered seriously scrambled memories. The Hills road trip was spontaneous, a well-earned break Barney decided the couple needed, as explained in The Interrupted Journey, a 1966 book they collaborated on with author John G. Fuller. Barney worked a grueling night shift at the post office, driving 60 miles each way. Up hills in the snow with no shoes on. Both ways. <laughs> Betty's job handling state child welfare cases was no easier. The little free time this biracial couple had was devoted to their church and, activate, and activities related to the civil rights movement. After 16 months of marriage, 
Betty and Barney saw this trip through Montreal and Niagara Falls as their delayed honeymoon. They left so impulsively, they had no time to go to the bank before it closed for the weekend. They got in their car with less than $70 in their pockets. On the last night of the three-day trip, the tired couple sipped coffee in a Vermont diner to recharge their uh, before driving back. Barney figured if they pushed through, they could beat the wind and rains from an approaching hurricane. They left the diner around 10 p.m., estimating they could reach their red-framed house in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. at the latest. Is it Portsmouth or Portsmouth? Portsmouth, Portsmouth. I'm just reading it as it's written. Sorry. I, <laughs> I'm sorry by... I don't live here. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't want to yeah. say it wrong. Portsmouth, I think. Ports, it sounds, sounds Portsmouth, better. Portsmouth, <laughs> whatever. Portsmouth. As they drove, strange light in the sky gave another reason to hurry. At first, it looked like a falling star, but grew larger and brighter with each mile. Barney, an avid plane watcher and World War II vet, was sure they had nothing to to worry about. It's just a satellite, he assured Betty. It probably went off course. The light seemed to move with the car as Barney steered down the curving mountain road. The light zigged and zagged, ducking past the moon and behind trees and mountain ridges, only to reappear moments later. Sometimes it seemed to move toward them in a game of cat and mouse. It had to be an illusion, they thought. Maybe the car's movement made it seem like the light, too, was moving. Curiosity overcame them. The couple pulled over at road stops and picnic turnouts to get a closer look. Through binoculars, Betty saw that the white light was really an object spinning in the air. Barney, she told her husband. If you think that's a satellite or a star, you're being completely ridiculous. He knew she was right. Barney had an IQ of 140. But Barney was also a pragmatic man, and he wouldn't give flying saucers a second thought. The night was too quiet for a helicopter, a commercial plane, or even military jet with a hotshot pilot. He didn't want to spook Betty, but he was becoming concerned. What What was this light, and why was it toying with them? About 70 miles past the diner... The object hovered just above the treetops, approximately 100 feet, 100 feet above them. Barney abruptly stopped the car, keeping his pocket, and rushed into a dark field, keeping his pocket. No, he put <laughs> <laughs> Keeping the engine running, he shoved the handgun he'd hidden beneath the seat into his pocket and rushed into a dark field, leaving Betty in the car. What he saw was as big as a jet, but as round and flat as a pancake. My God, what is this thing? He recalled thinking, this can't be real. Behind rows of windows, gray uniformed beings seemed to look right at him, Barney recalled. He tried to lift his hand to his pistol, but somehow he couldn't. A voice told him not to put down his binoculars. He had a startling thought. We're about to be captured. Yelling hysterically, he ran back to the car and barreled down the road as Betty tracked the craft, craning her head outside the car window. Without explanation, loud rhythmic beeps sounded from the car's trunk. The couple felt instantly drowsy and lost consciousness. They came to around two hours later and 35 miles down the road. Once they were back home in Portsmouth, they tried to make sense of the night. Barney felt compelled to examine his body's lower half. Well, I would too. Make sure everything's down there. You know, I'll examine your lower half. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, Three. Okay, we're good to go. (laughs) Both seemed aware of a puzzling presence. In the weeks and months after, Betty, an avid reader, checked out books from the library discovering the Civilian UFO Group National Investigations Committee on Aerial aerial Phenomena, NICAP. She also reported the sighting to the Air Force, worried about radiation. In coming years, with Betty suffering from disturbing dreams and Barney developing an ulcer and anxiety, the couple thought they, they sought mental help. The two met with Benjamin Simon, a psychiatrist and neurologist who specialized in hypnosis, a mainstream technique at the time. 
Through months of weekly sessions, Simon helped the couple piece together what they think had happened. A vessel had landed on the hill's car, putting them to sleep. Afterward, gray beings walked them up a long ramp and into the spacecraft. Once inside, the hills were separated, taking turns in an examination room that had curved walls and a large light hanging from the ceiling. Each was asked to climb up on a metal table. The table was so short, Barney's legs hung over the side. During the examinations, the beings removed Betty and Barney's clothes, plucked strands of their hair, took clippings of their nails, and scraped their skin. Each sample was placed on a clear material, not unlike a glass slide. Needles, connected to long wires, probed their heads, arms, legs, and spines. One large needle, around four to six inches long, was inserted into Betty's belly. This pregnancy test left her twisting in pain. Apparently, they were performing a pregnancy test. Throughout a being, Barney and Betty called the leader, watched from the side. After Betty's examination ended, the beings rushed back into her room, excited. They discovered that Barney's teeth could be removed. Betty laughed, explaining that Barney had dentures, a fact of human aging that beings struggled to understand. Later, alone with the leader, Betty asked where the craft had flown, admitting she knew little of the universe. The being joked with her, saying, if you don't know where you are, there wouldn't be any point in telling you where I am. Later, under hypnosis, she drew a star map shown to her on the ship. In 1965, the Hill story was picked up by a Boston newspaper. After that, everything had changed. The Quiet Couple story became the subject of a best-selling book and movie starring James Earl Jones. The upstanding, several, uh, the, the upstanding civil servants had become celebrity abductees. The Hills weren't the, the first to spot a UFO or even, the, even to report an abduction, but their story did capture the nation's imagination and was so widely publicized it has helped shape how we talk about alien encounters and abductions to this day. So they point out that these sightings and, and the, this experience with the hills happened around Cold War times. There's a lot of civil unrest. And I feel like that that kind of relates to what we were talking about with the abyss and yeah. how the aliens are, you know, they're present when when there's so much going on, when they're when we're dabbling with nuclear warheads, when we're in moments of, of global turmoil. And we're hyper aware at the time as well. And it's easy for us to say, well, you're just being hysterical because right. all this stuff is going on. Well, what if this is all going on because we're all being so hysterical, right? Right. So if, if we're at a point where we look like we're a bunch of fire ants biting, biting at each other, why wouldn't the, the farmer want to come and check us out, right? Right. So, I mean, it's very... Like we're creating a commotion in the universe. Yeah. Yeah, it's and a it, disruption in the natural order, and then people and people wonder, well, maybe these these UFOs, mm -hmm. maybe these aliens are here to just check us out in these volatile times, right? And it sounds like they were honestly just like, hey, what's like, what's this? Like, we what's discover up? a new species on the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. Maybe for uh for them, we're discover they're discovering some new species that for they had just kind of gotten their little expedition together and gotten through. And it sounds like it wasn't so much a craft as it was um, like a space-time rift, mm -hmm. like a doorway opened, which would make sense why he said what he said to her. If you don't know where you are, what point is it in telling you where I am? Because we may have an idea of where we think we are in the universe. We don't have a fucking clue. Amen. <laughs> we are clueless beings and that's why it's so fun to speculate and that's why my mind is so open to the fact that there are other beings out there and i i welcome the abduction totally I, well, I'm, I'm putting it out in the universe by benevolent ones anyway come get me 
I like the curious ones. Yeah. <laughs> the bi-curious ones. Uh, a. <laughs> uh, who was it that said it? Um, the whole reason behind covering up UFOs and why our government wouldn't want us to know that they exist. Dan Aykroyd said it best. Because he he's a total UFO. No, what did he say? Yeah. Uh, they wouldn't want us to know because <laughs> they are smarter than our government mm -hmm. and we would lose, basically would just lose respect. Like it would just be all chaos because we'd be like, fuck you. Right. Clearly they're smarter. Yeah. The superior ones. Yep. Yeah. Not, and I think that's, has a lot of the reason, a lot of the reason why the government has kept it a secret for, yeah. for so long and they'll probably never, just, never disclose everything that they found. Area 51 will always be a mystery and it's all about control. Feels like it anyway. So we covered a lot today, and I'm I'm actually going to be passing again on uh, some of the UFO stories that I had uh, saved up, including one that's not necessarily UFO, but more of an unexplained experience of uh, a Russian hiking group that went hiking on this very mountainous pass that they were discovered um, by. Basically, they they had been destroyed. Yeah, they, sort of. Yeah, some they, of them. Their chests were caved in. Yeah, their, head injuries. The, but all unexplained deaths. Not visible trauma until. But examined. it was physical trauma. Right. It was like it was like internal, mm -hmm. but not external. Yeah. And it left everybody kind of really baffled. It's called the Dietlaff Pass incident, and I'm gonna I'm gonna cut past that on to <laughs> get it pass. Ah. I'm gonna pass that on to uh, next week, maybe maybe further down the road because we're getting ready for our summer vacation. We're gonna be in Hawaii um, for two weeks. So we're going to probably do a special broadcast while we're out there on the beach, kind of like we did last year. Um, but I don't know what's in store for us next week, but I'm going to take a break from this UFO stuff because I, I need a breather. This is kind <laughs> of a mind bender and, and all the research, it just kind of makes my head go into circles. So uh, Brent from Sac Spirit, you're right. This is quite the, quite the rabbit hole and I'm exhausted. I need a nap. Till next time. Namaste, bitches. The Rad... Oh,